Uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're going to address the last of uh, the, the aspects of the flesh. And so when I say something like the flesh, um, if you were just even to put that in the realm of church talk and uh, theology, you would think something that has to do obviously with sin or sin nature, or even your physical flesh. And so we, we've been walking through that uh, to try and talk about how we address uh, temptations to uh, sin and old desires and our old self that uh, we're supposed to be put off. But um, the, the scripture has a way of referring to the flesh also as a system, as, as the world system. And so um, I think we, we get uh, banged up and confused a little bit because we, uh, we sort of exegete uh, the culture and take our cues from the culture or the world at large instead of looking at what the scripture has to say to us about what's, what's true and what reality is. And so when we look at culture first, we, we sort of look at what's happening and it seems like we're losing, right? We're, we're, we're fighting a, a losing battle and uh, it's just going to, in the most literal sense, hell in a handbasket, right? And, and so um, there's this last aspect of the flesh I want to talk about this morning that has to do with um, the world and our experience in it. And I'm trying to get there. There we go. Okay. So we, we talked about temptation to sin, which is uh, deceit that says that you can carry sin. Sin is okay. And uh, indulging in sin or practicing sin. And then last week we talked about the reality that there's a curse uh, on creation itself. And we ourselves experience the wearing out of our, our own physical bodies. And then this week it's talking about the reality that we... Uh, are pressed in, if you will, by the, 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 the flesh of the world. And uh, so here, here's how I want to explain that. Um, when, uh, when Jesus says, um, my, my kingdom's not of this world, and uh, we take that to mean something like the kingdom can't be seen in this world. And that's not what Jesus means. What, what Jesus means when he refers to the world and what John generally means all throughout his gospel and then one, two, three, John, when he talks about the world, he's talking about a system of people that are, are serving their, their base nature, which is sin. So there you get the aspect of the flesh meaning sort of collectively the idea of sin in the world or the world system. And so when we experience what it is to walk in a world system that is both um, cursed by uh, sin, by our wearing out, by our temptation to follow our own desires, that, that's where we get this cue and we sort of become overwhelmed and, and we sort of despair of the fact that we would, we would be victorious or that we can be victorious in spite of these things. And um, if you, you don't have to follow... Uh, politics very closely at all to, to feel like, um, at least in the West and in America, uh, just holding to any sort of biblical uh, scriptural values is, is becoming increasingly difficult. If you uh, aren't aware, uh, just I think it was last week or this, maybe it's two weeks ago now, they passed, uh, uh, it was called the Equality of Marriage Act. And if you're not familiar with what that entails, it's, it's basically making it more difficult uh, for a, a church to hold to uh, the, the biblical definition of what marriage is. And so because that's what's becoming culturally true, there's new laws being created that sort of will impinge on uh, what we kind of have come accustomed to as our, our freedoms of religion. That is one experience of what it means to walk in a, a fleshly world and, and feel the despair of that. And so um, 
We're looking this morning at Stephen's example of, of, of how he's walked through this. And Stephen reaches the end of his race uh, pretty quickly here. And we don't know when the end of our race will come. So for between now and then, for whatever should happen to come down the pike in terms of culture, in terms of the flesh of the world and, and sin and our, and our ability to walk in that faithfully um, needs to be summarized by the reality of what we stated last week, which is, it should be this. It's not I who live, but Christ in me. So how do we make that a true statement? How do we live that out in our lives? And so um, let's pray, go to the Lord, ask him to help us understand his word, that he would encourage uh, us this morning in, um, in being able to walk uh, against the tide. So Father, I pray this morning that as we turn our hearts and minds to your word, that you would... Um, First, calm your um, servant. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would uh, give me clarity of thought and speech this morning, um, but it would be for the purposes of declaring um, what's true, and that is um, what you want to speak. So, Father, uh, I just ask that you would help equip me with um, your truth, fill my mouth with your words, and um, anything that I have to say and uh, would just fall away, and that what you would want to say would be heard. Father, I ask that um, you would prepare um, us as your people. You would do the work of tilling up the hard ground of our hearts so that um, your truth, your word can be planted and bear fruit in us. And um, we need your spirit to do that. So, Father, I ask that you would do what we cannot, and that is to open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you. And, uh, Father, the hard work that we need to have flesh We ask that you would give it to us. Humbly we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, well, essentially we know this. We know that it's not not smooth sailing. And uh, I could spend a a lot of time talking about um, how we might experience persecution or what persecution might look like for the church in the coming weeks. And uh, we will get there. And um, I, I think that's, somewhat important for us, but just like preparing for your death is somewhat important, preparing for a faithful life is much more uh, on, on my heart to, to push forward to you. Because I know that um, just from what I, I've had conversations and questions that have been asked to me um, so far, um, Acts is both a very um, political book, but it's also a surprisingly eschatological book. And I say that eschatology refers to last things. And so there's so much overlap between uh, what we read here and then sort of what we read uh, playing out in the rest of the Gospels and into Revelation. And so when we think of Revelation, we think the end of time. um, And we're not going to get into that debate this morning, but I I need you to um, think forward to the reality of what it is that you feel like you're walking in. And uh, whether that is some sort of delayed gratification of, well, I know I'm not victorious now in this life, but I will be eventually in the future. I will be if, so, you know, whether it's at death or whether Jesus comes back, at that point, that's when we get to experience victory. And so we make the mistake of believing that Jesus says, you know, my kingdom's not of this world, and that means that his kingdom won't be seen in this world. And I know I already said that, but the purpose is this. Jesus didn't say that his kingdom wouldn't be seen in this world. It just was the, the, the purpose of that statement about my kingdom is not of this world, meaning it's not empowered by, or it's not equipped by, or it's not hindered by. Does that make sense? So Jesus is making a clear distinction in the fact that the, the power and the victory and what it is that we hope in is not, is not going to be seen then by our, our current circumstances. And that's an important statement. So then when you read the newspapers and you read the culture and you feel like you're reading 
uh, us losing and the world winning, that's not what's true. It's, it's true that the world will continue on and getting further and, uh, and further into sin. And as God turns uh, sinners over to their own depraved minds and desires, they're going to get worse and worse. And we're going to experience that as a culture. But we must not, we, we not despair in feeling like, well, that means that we won't advance at all. We can't make any progress or that we, we can't possibly be faithful in the midst of that. So um, turn your eyes this morning to uh, the scripture. And I want you to see um, how Stephen finishes his race. And, uh, and by doing that, I want you to see what is true that he points to that was, obviously, if it's true then, it's, it's got to be true now because we're somewhere downstream of this truth being asserted. And so we'll start in verse 55 and following. So Stephen is uh, testifying and uh, the response to his testimony about who they are as a people and how they've resisted um, God's um, moves towards them to deliver them and to, um, to, to bring them freedom. Uh, this is what they, uh, what this is response. So Stephen, he full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. I know I've read this now for four or five weeks, but this is an important statement. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. But now they respond. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. So we see Stephen declaring something to be true and the response then to that declaration uh, being true. So um, Stephen is, is just about to uh, lose his life and uh, he's given a vision of, of something that was predicted. Old Testament uh, becomes uh, something that happens temporarily, that means in time, that means it actually occurred in Stephen's lifetime and in the lifetime of these people, and now it's bearing its, its truth out downstream of that. And so um, what, what Stephen says here is he sees uh, Jesus um, see, standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen's vision is, is important as the words that he's declared previous to this and afterward. Stephen sees a vision uh, of Jesus standing. And so um, what we have to know that we're not overwhelmed and we're not overcome and there's something else to hope in is the fact that we are serving a God who is outside of this small scheme of the world and that Jesus is currently reigning in a way that, that, um, that we may not get to experience here in, in, in the fullness, but it's true in the heavenly places. So um, here's where we have a couple of assurances. You have to believe that there is some substance to Jesus' assurance to us and to his disciples that we ought not to fear because he has overcome the world. So in John chapter 16, verse 33, we have Jesus stating, so after he had told them they're going to experience all kinds of trials and difficulties in the world, that he's going away, but he would give them a helper and a Holy Spirit, and they're going to be drugged before the councils and all the, all the, all the bad news he gives them. But he says, I, I tell you this, so that when that comes, that you won't fall away. And that you can have courage and you can take heart. So that's why he says that. I've told you these things so that in me you would have peace. So if you look at the world and all the bad stuff that's happening, you're not going to find your peace. But in spite of that, in the world you will have trouble. But take courage. Take heart. Fear not. There's the encouragement we're, we're given over and over and over in Scripture. Why? Because I have overcome the world. There has to be substance to that statement more than just an emotional evoking of you can do it, come on, it, it, it'll be okay. So you have to consider the truth of that claim. In what sense does Jesus say, I have overcome the world? And then if that's true, and we're downstream of Jesus having overcome the world, 
And what we see right now is an overcome, in some sense, world. We need to both understand what the world is and what does it mean that it's, it's overcome in a way that should encourage us. So I, I gave you some, some parts to that, but it's, um, it's going to relate specifically due to the fact that, uh, that Jesus is seen at the right hand of God. So we have the truth of this claim that Jesus is saying, I've overcome the world, and yet our experience of that same world that's been overcome is overwhelmingly despairing to those that would have faith. Do you see the, the problem there, the disconnect, or the, sort of the, the, the things that rub against each other? So we, we have to understand then what Jesus means by this victory. So his important assurance here is a confirmation of something, and it's assurance about another thing. It's an assurance that there's a victory to be had in spite of what we, what we experience and what we feel like is going on in this world, but also that there's something beyond our definition of, quote-unquote, the world. Okay? So he's confirming that even though it seems like things are degraded and bad, there's something beyond that. There's, something, uh, there's a greater picture to be had, and there's an experience of victory in, in spite of that, even in our current circumstances. And so Stephen declares here that he sees the glory of God, and Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus made this statement prophetically when he was in the exact same position that Stephen is in currently. When, when, when Jesus is drugged before the council, questioned by the high priest, accused of blasphemy of the temple. Remember, he, they said he was accused of uh, that he would tear down the temple and that he would rebuild it in three days. That was accused of blasphemy of the temple. And so uh, part of that uh, is uh, the accusations against Jesus. But then in... Uh, uh, going on in, in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus predicts this, that um, Jesus said to him, you have said it is so. So he asked, are, are you truly the Christ? That was what the high priest asked him. And Jesus says, uh, you have said it is so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, so Jesus said this prophetically before we get this confirmation later on from Stephen confirming this exact thing, that the, the heavens are opened up and Jesus is in the exact place where he said he would be. Well, this isn't just a, a happenstance and it's not like a lucky coincidence. The high priest, just after Jesus makes this prophecy, that he makes this statement, he tears his clothes and he, and he says, he accuses him them of blaspheming God because you being a man, make yourself equal to God. And what the high priest knows that you ought to know as well is what Jesus is referencing in this prophecy is from Daniel chapter 7. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting a couple links in the chain for you. So, so rewind all the way first to Jesus' trial. Jesus says, from now on, you will see me seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting there Daniel 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel's having a vision. Let me read it to you. It says, I, see, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. Um, so uh, don't reverse the direction of this. And what I mean by that is literally the direction of this. It, it says, there's one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God himself. So he's coming from somewhere down below up to heaven. So this is what Daniel's seeing in his vision. He came to the ancient days and he's presented before him, okay? So now we have a courtroom scene. And what's happening in this presentation is that the one who is presented, the one like the Son of Man, coming to the, uh, the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so now I've put another link in the chain, but it's actually further back than when Jesus predicted this being true. Okay, so way back in Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel has a vision of the Son of Man going through the Ancient of Days, being presented with a kingdom and dominion that rules forever and ever and ever. That's, that's, that should ring some bells for you about the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Christ. And this is why it's important that we say something like Jesus is Lord, because it's true. So what's happening in the fact that Jesus predicted this being the case and then Stephen beholding it to be true is that what's happening in, in Daniel chapter 7 did occur and, it's, and, and we're given this uh, several confirmations. One is at the beginning of Acts and then at the end of the Gospels that record it where Jesus ascends to heaven before the eyes of the disciples. And what does it say? He's taken up in the... And he ascends to heaven. And it says, hey, what are you staring at? And they're like, I don't know, right? And then they said, well, he'll come back in the same way that he left. So there is the literal beginning, the inauguration of the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, that Jesus did ascend and he did, uh, was seated at the right hand of power. So we have sort of a conundrum here, but it's not really a conundrum because we're told, Jesus predicts, I'll be seated at the right hand of power. Over and over, the, the, the language is seated. But what Stephen says is, he says, I see the Son of Man standing, or Jesus, I see standing. So is he sitting or is he standing? Well, first, just understand what seated indicates. Seated just means it's a position that's held. Like we would refer to it very simply like we have a sitting president. That's somebody who's holding a position somewhere. And so we, then, then the emphasis is not so much on the position, but what position is being held. Does that make sense? Not the physical position of being seated, but what is, what is he seated at? Well, he's seated at the right hand of power. That is God's power. And so he's, he's presiding over this kingdom. And so we should understand that Christ doesn't literally have to be sitting down from now until eternity without exerting anything, lest he uh, be picking up a new work that was already finished. So we understand that the position of s- sitting down means he's rested from his work, and he did declare that everything was finished at the cross. So it's not the fact that he's sitting down that's most important. But there is something very important to the fact that Stephen now sees him standing. And so there's some suggestions given to why, does, why is Jesus now standing if he's, if he's resting from his work? Well, um, there's a lot of reasons why somebody would stand. One, one would be to, to welcome someone, to, to, uh, to greet a guest. And so um, if we hold with that, the idea that Stephen has been, uh, Jesus is standing in the position of power in the throne room, in a courtroom, at a courtroom setting for Stephen. And so there's connecting the heavenly courtroom and the earthly realm of courts and judicial actions that are taking place. And Stephen being judged by the flesh, in the flesh, by the rules of man, or God judging with a much higher kind of judgment and a much greater kingdom. And so I think that's what's at play here. So Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is a direct citation of the most quoted passage throughout all of Scripture, which is Psalm 110, which is this. That you, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the, the, this is the most quoted uh, scripture in all, of, um, in all of the New Testament. And Peter quoted this same scripture in his speech in Acts 2. And um, we see then that that's the outcome of Jesus going to heaven and receiving this kingdom. That he's now seated at the right hand of power until when and why. Until when and why. Well, 
He's seated at the right hand of power until all of his enemies should be made a footstool. So Jesus' ascension fulfilled Daniel 7, and it's the inauguration then of his kingdom. So let me carry this on. Actually, let Paul carry this on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the, the, the resurrection uh, hope uh, passage, uh, Paul goes through that. Just scribble that down if you want some encouragement uh, about your life and uh, what your hope is. But 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul is now alluding to the same passage, and he said that he, being Jesus, must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. So there's the Psalm 110 quote. And then he says, But the last enemy to be eliminated is death, for he has put everything in subjection under his feet. So, um, so, so get the connection here. Jesus really is resurrected. He's been presented with the kingdoms. He's ruling over these kingdoms until the time. So there's an ongoing sense where enemies are being defeated and things are progressing and growing and the kingdom of God should be advancing even in spite of the fact that the kingdom of man and the kingdom of the flesh seems to be prevailing in some ways. And what we should take our hope from is that they will be conquered successively, but the last one to be eliminated is death. And this is... Um, sort of hopeful and sort of discouraging for us because that means that there's still something hanging out there that could maybe potentially discourage us. So death itself has not yet been taken away. We know this because everyone dies, okay? Death is still ruling and reigning in the world. Its defeat is eminent and assured. It will be put under Christ's feet, but it has reigned unthreatened and undefeated until Christ broke the power of sin in the grave. So again, later on in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say this about death. Even though death still exists, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so sin still, uh, or excuse me, death still exists, but the power of death and the, and the sting of death, the thing that really made it a problem, why it's really an enemy was sin. And Jesus has put that part of it away. So that even though we experience death, we still have a victory in Christ. So there's a, there's a reason to hope. All things are coming into subjection on his feet. Eventually, death will totally be eliminated. There won't be any more death. But for those that experience it right now, it's not a defeat, it's a victory. Why? Because the Lord has removed the sting of death, which is sin and the law and the power of it. And so um, we, we should be hopeful that uh, we see an increasing in the kingdom and uh, but, but right now we know the reality is that all things are not in subjection to the one who is ruling and reigning. Look in verse 57 now again of uh, our passage in, in Acts. So the reaction to this is that they, that, that would be all of the council, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. This is the, the, uh, the same word for rush together that when Jesus cast out the demons into the pigs and it says they rushed down the hill into uh, over, over the cliff. This is the same idea. It's just, um, again, instinctual animal resistance to the truth. And that is what, um, what signifies or what um, is, is indicative of the flesh, indicative of the world. And so their response to this is literally to try and block out what's true. They, they, it's like infantile, if you think about it. They're, they're plugging their ears. And, um, and they rush at him uh, and they cast him out of the city. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They're angry. It says that they're like gnashing their teeth at him. And so this is a reaction to, to judgment. And it is a judgment 
on them. And it's also their attempted judgment on, on Stephen. And um, I think uh, the problem in, in general, then if you, if you want to summarize what's happening and, uh, and get to sort of what's underneath our experience of the world and why we have this disconnect, is that um, we mistake the, uh, the shadow realm, if you want to look at that, which is the earth, as being the substance. But it's not the substance. And, uh, and so when you think of what it means to be saved, um, much like uh, the game of Monopoly, <laughs> when, when you're engaged in the, in the game, some people think of what it means to be saved as the little get-out-of-jail-free card. And you say, well, I, I'm, I'm relegated to this, this, world, this, this board, this, this set of rules, this game, and, uh, but, but Jesus has given me a get-out-of-jail-free card so I can move about freely then again on the board. And so something like that. But that's like a reduced... Uh, idea. It's not, it's not significant enough for us to really say that that's a, a good description. And some people think that, you know, if, if uh, my experience of victory should be that I own everything on the board, right? I, I, I get to win over the fact that the world who is sinful and these people are, I'm not serving God, that uh, I should just be able to walk in victory and I should, I should own everything. And that's not the victory either that Jesus is talking about. We do face a, a, a rigged system. But Jesus tells us, in spite of that, to be of good, church, of good courage. So what is it that we do face in the world? And why are we encouraged then not, not to have fear? And why is just thinking of it as get out of jail free not, not enough? Well, it says um, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 that, uh, that Jesus uh, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. That's Hebrews description of what, what's happening right now at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of help. So the, the sting of death is sin, but he put it away by sacrifice himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, so death still exists, after that comes judgment. So I, I think uh, if we were to summarize what it is that we face in the world, it's twofold. It's being subjected to the rules that, and the power that we don't control. And it's contrived and it's contorted in a way that's meant to press you towards giving up. Because the people that are indulging in and reveling in sin don't want to hear the truth. And so when it's presented before them, the, 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 the point is to resist and then to create further rules that will keep, um, the keep space and distance between having to uh, interact with that. And so that's what you observe in the text here and that's what we observe in culture that more and more there's a greater growing gap between what we experience as being a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian, and where the rest of culture seems to be headed, right? And so we've kind of made the mistake of thinking that our alliance with the world was acceptable, that we could own some properties on the board, and that was good. We were getting some victories, but those weren't victories. That was, that, that, uh, that's advancing in, in a world system that was never your, your hope. So, so the, the point of, of saying it's not sufficient to get out of jail free is to make the game the ultimate, the ultimate thing, and it's not. You are participating in something right now, but it's not ultimate. So um, I need to make a long allegory make sense to you. <laughs> so, so bear with me for a minute. If you're not... Uh, if, you're, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, the, the last book is called The Last Battle. 
And uh, in, in the book, um, it, it's sort of an allegory all through um, how um, the, the book of Revelation essentially is this, uh, played out in, in the realm of Narnia. And there uh, is someone who comes and uh, they impersonate um, Aslan, who's the king. And uh, all, the, all the, uh, the king of Narnia and all the people, they're told that uh, the king is returned. And so um, they begin to serve this king, but he's not really the king. It's just a, just a human being. Just, or, well, he's not human in, in the book, but he's, he's not God. But he's impersonating, and he leads them to do bad things. And so we, we, we see there's a deception there of uh, people beginning to trust in the power uh, of the world. And so this all plays out. Um, eventually, um, Aslan does return, but because of the people that were deceived by this original false king, if you will, the Antichrist in the allegory, okay? There's a group of um, dwarves that uh, become disillusioned with the fact that there could be a real Aslan, that there could be a real king that's really good and that really wants good for them. And so when the, the good king actually shows up at the end and when, when Aslan, um, he wants to offer them life, he wants to offer them the true world, which is not the one they're in right now, they can't see it because of the despair of what they've already experienced. So they've experienced what it is to be deceived, and they've also experienced what it is just to have the existence of evil and depravity in the world. And, and we kind of walk through the same thing. But um, you, you won't despair to the point of, of, um, of missing uh, the true king if you haven't put your hope in the world. And, and this, is the, this is the illusion I'm trying to make. That when, when Aslan offers the, uh, the dwarves are these disillusioned group, he offers them this banquet. They don't see it as a good banquet. In fact, they, they think it's garbage and they, they grumble about the kind of food that it is and they begin to fight over it and they actually beat each other up and they, they, they ruin all the food. And, uh, and uh, Aslan says, uh, he, he, he's responding to them, about what it is that they see. So the dwarves grumble about the food. They treat it like garbage and they grind it into, um, they grind it into the ground. And uh, Aslan wants to invite them into the, the true world, the Narnia beyond what is the true world. And he says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen their own cunning, their own wisdom, their own, their own understanding instead of belief. Instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they're in that prison. They're so afraid of being taken in, they cannot be taken out. Okay? Let me, let me, let me read that again, and then I, I think I can press this into us. They won't let us help them because they've chosen their own understanding. They've, they've chosen their own um, experience over belief of what they've been invited into. That, that there's a, a victory beyond this, that the fact that even though things were bad, there was a war, there was evil things being done, there was deception in the name of Aslan. They, they've chosen that instead of belief in a truer, bigger picture that actually exists. And so that prison in their own minds is just as real as being in a prison. Even though Aslan is wanting to set them free out, inviting him to come out of it, to, to experience what it is that he has. But the problem is that they put their hope in, in the prison. They've said this is the reality and that's all there is. So there couldn't be anything more. And so they're afraid of being taken in again or deceived again and believing in something so they cannot be taken out of it. You can't be taken out of something that you, 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 um, 
you believe all that, that that is all there is. So when we look at the world and we look at what it is to experience maybe despair or defeat or being oppressed by the culture or being invited to sin or it makes it hard to walk in it. Our experience is sort of despairing. Well, how, how, if, if God is good, why, why is that happening? Why am I not walking in victory? Why is it not making this easy for me to be faithful? Or we fear that once I die, they're, they're, that's a fearful thing because somebody can take my life away and then you make the, 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 the game the ultimate thing. And the, and the Monopoly game isn't the ultimate thing if you want to just use the analogy. It's when, when you've played a game and you've engaged in it, you, you, Monopoly takes forever and ever to play, right? And, and at, that, at some point, you, you sort of like assume the role of whatever it is that you have and you put your all into that thing and you try to win, right? But that wasn't, that wasn't reality. When you stand up and walk out of playing that game, that's the reality, is it not? And th- that's the same thing. Uh, that's the picture that's trying, that I'm trying to draw for you and that's being drawn for us in scripture. That we are participating in something that uh, it has rules and there's a system there. And if we lose, maybe we've lost in, in that small way a game, but there's a reality that we then step into that's truer than that, that's bigger than that. And that's the, the presence of God, heaven existing as we were meant to exist with Christ. And so the, the passageway to that is death, the thing that we fear most. And the thing that still hangs out in front of us as potentially a judgment. But then Jesus tells us, well, we shouldn't fear. Don't fear those who can kill the body. And so we have confirmation that they can kill the body, but fear the one instead who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So um, we have the question of judgment before us. And it's either being judged by the flesh in the flesh about our conformity to um, the system or seeing that there's a bigger picture and that there's one who is ruling over all of this beyond that. So in John chapter 5, verse 24, we have this, this assurance from Jesus. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. It's, it's something that you already possess so that death is not a, a great chasm which is impassable. At the end, uh, at the end of the last battle, there's, um, it's a stable and uh, everybody goes into the stable. And for some, when they, when they go into the stable, that's the end. They go into Aslan's never-ending shadow. But for other people, when they go through, the, they pass through the door, which is death, and then they pass into the, the Narnia beyond. And then Aslan informs them that, that, that England didn't really exist. That was just a shadow land, right? And, uh, and so that's the reality, that passing, passing away, going through the door of death, is the meaning of what's actually true. And that's why it's a bigger story that Jesus really is actually on a throne and not on an earthly throne. And that his kingdom is not actually of this world. And so that, that moving beyond that door, crossing that river, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use for that, it's no longer a great chasm, but it's just simply a passageway when you already possess eternal life. Why? Because you shall not come into judgment. The person that already um, has eternal life does not come under judgment, but has already passed from death to life. You're already doing your dying if you've committed yourself to the Lord in faith. So look at Stephen's dying words, if you will. He says, I, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing your right hand. Uh, they cast him out of the city, they stoned him. And as they're stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus cried out from the cross. But um, where, where Stephen is quoting a psalm, Jesus leaves an important part of that out. 
When Jesus says, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit, it's the same action, it's the same entrusting to the Lord, his spirit. But the, the rest of the psalm says, because you've redeemed me, because, because you are my God. And so um, uh, he, he, Stephen here is entrusting, uh, not in a new way, but something that's, that he's always been doing. And that is living a faithful life. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which is, again, reminiscent of Jesus's words on the cross. And so we have then truly a, a martyr in the, the most literal sense of the word, a witness to the Lord, and then a martyr in the colloquial sense, or just the common sense of someone who died for Jesus and died for the faith. In Revelation, we see that God is not indifferent to the plight of those who fulfill his call. But his encouragement is not like, well, you're going to get defeated, so just give up. But he says, you already have the victory, so because of that, because death is not the significant chasm that you think that it is, overcome, persevere, go through. Why? It's not just an attaboy. It's not like a buck up, do better, try harder. It's because Jesus is the one who is with them. He's the one that will strengthen them to either walk through those things or who will be there to receive them if they die. And that's what we see. Jesus, there he is, uh, visible to Stephen, receiving him as one who is faithful, who's giving his life. And there's, it's not a, a fearful thing to go in to be with the Lord. In Revelation 14, we're told, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they will rest from their hard work and their good deeds will follow them. And then finally, at the end of Revelation in 22, in verse 12, says, Behold, I'm coming soon to repay all those according to their deeds. And so there's a great reversal of the, the judgment of the world. There's a, a, there's, a, there's a cosmic courtroom that really matters. And there's a cosmic king that really does rule everything. And then there's the world and the flesh. And that system that presses in on you and wants you to give up, that invites you to give up, but you're supposed to hope beyond that because there's a victory that's bigger than that. We needn't fear the world because of the judgment of the flesh. And we needn't fear death because the sting has been removed. In Revelation chapter 6 at the end, or chapter 6 talks about um, martyrs, those who have given their lives for the cause. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, says, I saw under the altar, this is John's vision into heaven, I saw under the altar the souls of those who were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O, o sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will you, judge and, uh, will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the picture here is this. There's those who have died for the testimony of of God and for holding fast, for persevering, for overcoming. And they're in heaven and they, they want justice because what's still occurring on the earth it has, not, uh, has not been avenged. It's not been truly judged. And so the uh, uh, Lord Jesus' response is um, not to say, oh, I'm going down there now, but he says it, it will come quickly. In uh, verse 11, he says, they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer. And he's not just putting off judgment for, for no good reason. Uh, it says that there's a, the purpose for the waiting for the number of our fellow servants and brothers will be completed who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there's, there's just two aspects to this I want to highlight as we're closing. That those who die in faith 
are, are pleading for judgment. They're pleading for, um, for an avenging of their, their, their giving their lives on the earth. And that will happen and it will come, but there's a delaying of that. But in the meantime, there's, they're, where they're equipped with something, they're given something as a judgment of their faithfulness and an assurance that um, there would be a judgment on the earth. And the reason why this is all being delayed is so that more and more people will be saved. There's a, a surprising, um, there's surprising statement in Hebrews chapter 11 that after the hall of faith and all of the people that did all of these things by faith and were like, hooray, hurrah. And then remember in chapter 12, it says, because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, because all of these people have been able to walk in faith, you too throw off all the weight of sin and run with perseverance and endurance the race, right? We're like, great. Right at the end of chapter 11 though, it says they did not receive what was promised, which should be a shock to you. Wait a second. They were hoping, they persevered, they did everything they were supposed to do. And it says they did not receive what was promised to them. Why, why not? Well, it says because um, something was better was promised to us. And he says, and, uh, and that the, 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 their number would not be made complete without us. That they're waiting for us to, to, be, to, to all the rest of the fullness of those who will be saved to come in. That's, that's the fullness of, of what we're, we're going to be given. And the better thing that we are told that we will have is this righteousness, this equipping of something. And that's the robe that's given to, uh, to the saints. We're told over and over that it's not our, it's not our goodness, it's not our ability that can earn us uh, a righteous judgment into heaven. It's not, it's not on our grounds of, uh, of, of, of effort or work or our faithfulness that allows us to be admitted beyond the door into the presence of God, right? It's because we're equipped with something better, that, that righteous robe that we're given. This, this is a theme that's been repeated over and over in Scripture. In Zechariah chapter 3, um, Joshua, who is the high priest of Israel at that point, he, he appears in the courtroom of heaven before the, the king, and he's, he's, he realizes he's in dirty rags and robes, and Satan is there standing as the accuser in the divine courtroom now, not just the courtroom of, of earth. And, and the problem is that Israel has done all of the things that, that they're being accused of doing. The rags really, the, the robes really are dirty and ugly and stained and bad. And so every accusation that Satan would level would be true. But it says then the judge decides, he says, bring, bring a robe and put a robe on him and bring a new turban, a new, a new headdress and, and put it on him. And so we see that the, the, the new righteous robes are given, not because of anything that was true about Joshua at that moment right? But because the judge decided to, to give what was not merited. And so the fact that Jesus is standing in a courtroom and that he is the king ruling over all is not just a picture of a throne and a king, but now it's a judge. And it's not just a judge, but he's also standing as an advocate. And he's also standing as a witness. And he's also standing as the ransom paid. And he's also standing as the foreign righteousness. And he's the one that, that is equipping you with the thing that you don't have. And so the divine judgment is then turned on its head from when we experience here uh, on earth. So the courtroom now is a welcome thing and not a, a scary thing because, because the judge is king and the counselor is the jury, which allows us to say that we can faultless stand before the throne. If you think about the idea, it's not stand, stand before the docket, 
It's, it's stand before the ruler of the earth. Stand before the just one who judges all things. Christ is not just on the throne. Christ is the judge. He's the advocate. He's the witness, which is all the case made for us in Revelation as the one who's ruling and reigning. So this morning, as we turn our hearts to um, thank, thank the one who, uh, who is our advocate, who is the jury, who is the witness, who is the judge, we have to be mindful that our experience right now may not bear that out. And, and so you could potentially look at what's going on and you feel despair because I, 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 don't, um, I don't feel that I'm walking in victory. But the thing that you're supposed to be victorious in is not... Um, is not merited by your righteousness here. It's not by what you're doing in, in order to earn that. It's what you're already given. It's the eternal life that you've been clothed in that allows you to take heart in the fact that no matter what, come what may, death has is, is, is been defeated and it will be finally defeated at the end. So let's pray. Um, I pray that the, the Lord would uh, encourage our hearts in this. Um, Father, you're good.